what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Hello, and welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is a place where we talk about the joys and the challenges of caring for our aging parents and for ourselves. I am Frances Hall. I am founder and executive director of ACAP Community. In today's podcast, we are highlighting the experiences of African-American caregivers who represent a range of cultural perspectives. Our guests today are Rosalind Pugh Scott, Public Health Specialist at the Center for Outreach in Alzheimer's, Aging Community Health at A&T University in Greensboro, Greensboro, North Carolina. And we also have Carolyn Thompson, who is a registered nurse with a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing, the Faith Community Nurse with Catawba Valley Health Systems in Hickory, North Carolina. Both of these professionals have worked, worked extensively with caregivers, especially family members caring for their loved ones at home. Hi, Rosalind. Hi, everyone. How's everyone doing again? Doing fine. And Carolyn, hello to you. Hello. How are you today? Doing fine. This podcast is made possible through a 2018 grant from the Hickory Community Relations Council. The grant project also included audio videos uh, excuse me, audio interviews with caregivers in the Hickory area who represent African-American, Latino, and Hmong caregivers and educational materials reflecting this information. Joining me also for the interview is Beth Brandis, Beth Harris Brandis, who is an ACAP board member who also conducted the interviews as part of the Hickory Community Relations Project. She's the one who actually spearheaded this project. Beth, it's always great to have you here. Thank you, Francis. We greatly appreciate each of your being with us today at ACAP as we expand our understanding of unique cultural factors that may impact family dynamics, use of healthcare systems, and end-of-life issues for families in our communities. And I'm going to turn it over to Beth. Great. Thanks. And we'll start with discussing some issues with Rosalind Pugh Scott. We're delighted to have you with us today. Thank you. are delighted to be here. Rosalind, can you first tell us a little about your experience in worth working with African-American family caregivers? Sure. My first experience uh, started in 2009. I was hired as a family consultant to work with caregivers who were taking care of persons uh, with the Alzheimer's diagnosis in eastern North Carolina with a program called Project CARE. And CARE stands for Caregivers Alternatives to Running on Empty. Um, This program consisted of providing resources, um, navigating uh, services and support uh, at the local level, as well as it had a respite component um, attached to it as well. Great. And so in that, you've led support groups as well as conducted some research with family members whose loved ones have had Alzheimer's diagnosis. Were there recurring themes that you identified in their experiences, specifically as African-American family caregivers? Sure, sure. Um, Several themes, actually. Um, And I'll I'll talk about a a few of them. Uh, The number one that I found was 
uh, the super, what I call a superwoman uh, mentality, um, because in most um, African American families, it's the female that's caregiving, whether it's a child or a spouse or another family member, and so is this uh, mentality that I can do all of this. Um, I don't necessarily need um, support. Um, I can, you know, bring the family in when I think it's necessary, but I got this. I can do this. I can be the mom. I can be the caregiver. You know, I can do all these other things, which, um, of course, was exhausting uh, to the caregiver, but not always recognizable uh, via the caregiver. Um, Another thing, um, spirituality, uh, another reoccurring theme. African-American families are, you know, big into their churches and um, their spirituality. They really count on their prayers and, you know, reading of the word to get them through um, challenging times, regardless of whether it's caregiving or some other type of um, family issue. Um, Less likely to seek placement. Um, That's something else that I noticed as well. Um, Really, you know, focusing on trying to keep that uh, loved one home as long as possible. Um, uh, Not necessarily looking to place them and in really not recognizing that they are exhausted and it may be time to place them if there's no other supports available. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were several others um, that we had um, uh, reoccurring themes, um, not really noticing, well, wrong choice of words, of loved ones being diagnosed later uh, in the diagnosis, um, especially a lot of older adults um, may not necessarily take to going to the doctor or took to going to the doctor in those immediate early stages. And so there was a tendency to be diagnosed um, later in the, in the stages of the diagnosis and also, you know, with uh, being diagnosed later, not seeking resources until later in the diagnosis as, as well. And so there were several others like um, sandwich generation, more than likely the, uh, the caregiver is a, a wife or a husband and, and, a, and a child taking care of a mom or dad and possibly still working. So that's, that was a few of the reoccurring things that um, I noticed uh, in the African-American community. That's really helpful to hear. Did you notice in families that were caring and handling a lot of daily living activities, were there some themes that you saw there that you felt were specific culturally? Um, when, you know, in, in rural communities, uh, probably more so because, um, you know, even though I started out in 2009 with four counties, I ended up uh, uh, working in uh, all of Eastern North Carolina, which is a total of 33 counties. Uh, with the ADLs, once again, you know, uh, female caregivers, that superwoman mentality, you know, I can handle this, I can take care of this loved one, even when it came down to the point where they may have not, you know, may not be mobile, it's still that strong desire to do as much as you can as long as you can, um, not really considering their own health and the consequences of, you know, what that may, how that may impact them as well. Right. So when families began to try to distribute the responsibilities, were there things that you noticed in terms of family dynamics that either promoted coordination of that or inhibited it? Well, uh, first come, first serve. You know, in, in the American, in the uh, African American family, there really is no structure or format for assigning the responsibilities. Okay. Uh, in most cases, whomever the primary caregiver is, 
They may be the person that does it all. They may be, you know, doing the care. They may be handling the finances. They may be driving them to the doctor's appointments, um, all of those types of things. Um, you know, uh, we had a caregiver conference um, here uh, last year, and we had a Mr. Uh, Brian Pitts, who was named a co-anchor of ABC Nightline, African-American gentleman. And he had, I think it was three of he had three siblings, he had two other siblings, and a host of uh, aunts. And uncles and cousins that help him take care of his mom. And his testimony was amazing to me because I had never heard of a family so organized in the care of a loved one. And he talked about how each person was assigned a responsibility based on their gifts. Um, an example of that would be like, you know, he was the, out of the siblings, he was the one they knew made the money because of his occupation. So anything that had to do with finances, he took care of it. Uh, his brother was a truck driver, so he he took care of the, you know he liked to work with his hands, so he took care of things that were involving the home. Um, and and you know in, in my experience in working in Eastern North Carolina, there was not a lot of that type of deciding on who would do what. It was just you happen to be here, uh, not really focusing on your skills of being able to do it. It's like you're the primary caregiver, and so you're you're ending up having to do it. Right. Well, it, it might be a good delegation model for some of us to pay attention to as we care <laughs> really? for our family. It was, I mean, I could, I could, it was, a, I was, I was sitting in the conference with my mouth open as he talked about other, like going to the doctor. He said they would be like 15 deep. And when they, everybody went with her to the doctor, he had this one uncle that, you know, he wasn't a very, um, you know, he wasn't, he didn't do well in life. You know, he just kind of, you know, was out and about, but his only responsibility was to come and sit with her and watch stories. And that was it. And that's he was not to too. feed her. He was not to give her medication. He not not to not to help her with any ADLs, any of that. His responsibility was to come and watch stories with her, and that was it. So everyone has a gift to bring back as well, which is a great model there. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. You mentioned that often families were late sometimes in seeking medical care. Um, did you find that? families express or caregivers express positive or negative experiences with the medical community? And this, this kind of varied, um, you know, one of the two things that I think, um, especially, you know, older adults kind of put their trust in, you know, people or entity, and that's their pastor in the African-American community, number one, their pastor. And number two, if they are going to the doctor, is their doctor. Mm-hmm. Access issues. <laughs> so you know, um, the, you know the, the negative experiences. You know, were there. Sometimes it was a, a, a race. You know, it felt like it was a race issue. They're not getting the attention, or the doctor is not understanding. You know that their loved one has this diagnosis. Um, sometimes it was just. You know, we go to the doctor. He just gives us medication. He don't explain anything. He doesn't tell us anything. He doesn't refer us to any resources. Those negative uh, type of responses. But then there are also those positive ones as well, where uh, caregivers were very pleased with their doctors and, and how they were communicating, um, even though there was a, a lack of knowing what resources were available. They were very happy with the care that they were receiving and the fact that the doctor listened to what they were saying um, and also will refer them, is, if need be, to specialty services. So that, uh, that kind of varied ac- across the board. And so in those discussions, were there certain community gaps that you really felt like that we needed to pay more attention to? Oh, most definitely. Um, 
one of the things that I, and I'll approach it from two different perspectives. I'll uh, first I'll say, you know, I look at it from an organization, you know, like the um, the uh, Department of Social Services and the different uh, aging organizations in the community. Um, the, the gaps that I notice, you know, with the, um, organ- the organization is that there's no one stop stop. There's this piecemealing that has to take place in order to to get a whole a, a, a service that's going to uh, meet the need of the care recipient and the caregiver from a, a holistic perspective. You know, say things like Meals on Wheels, um, you know, the home uh, home and community-based services, uh, transportation, housing. It, you know, I ran into a lot of veterans in eastern North Carolina because of uh, Goldsboro and Cherry Point. You know, trying to have a one-stop shop was very complicated and stressful when you'd have to go to all you got to go to dss and you might get served you know what you're looking for there or you and then you have to go to you know um, the office on aging to get another service so a huge gap in how the services are you know being made available to the caregiver and the care recipients in the community so that's from that perspective and we do hear a lot about that fragmentation and that people don't actually know where to go for assistance. Mm-hmm. Or where to start. And that's, um, that's one of the other things. You know, where do I start? That's huge for African Americans. Um, where do I, you know, who do I talk to? If I talk to this one over here, they refer me to that one over there. Like once again, my, my experience working in the East is a lot of, was a lot of piecemealing, a lot of, you know, one service might be available in this county, but it not might, you know, may not be available in the other county. And also from, from entity to entity, you know, um, services not being uh, available for the need uh, of the uh, caregiver and the care recipient as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So my other component um, in in reference to gaps is the caregivers. Uh, One thing that I noticed is the lack in knowledge of what this diagnosis means. The lack in knowledge of planning ahead uh, for this uh, diagnosis uh, as well. A huge misunderstanding about what dementia is, what Alzheimer's is. Um, if you, if the, those who I, I met that it was early in the stage, they're like, oh, you know, they, they don't think of, they don't want to think about the possibility of what lies ahead. They just want to live in the moment. And I understand that, but, you know, preparation and, and having a knowledge and an understanding is extremely important to your well-being and your health. And that's true for the person that they're caring for as well as for the caregiver. And I I think it's one of the roles that ACAP has definitely provided in trying to bring people together and thinking together about those issues, for sure. Uh My last question for this part is really to just ask you about end-of-life issues and how much... um, people were willing to talk about those end-of-life issues, and did you learn anything specifically about how you felt that African-Americans approached that? Once again, um, when we talk about uh, end-of-life issues, African-Americans are huge um, about their spiritual life, you know, prayer and, you know, reading the word and meditation and things like that. Uh, The majority of the African-American families that I work with, that was their stronghold or their go-to when it comes to end-of-life issues, you know, knowing that, you know, you know, God, they, you know, of course, using the term, you know, God's going to take care of it and, you know, he's not going to forsake me and, you know, we're going to be okay through our prayer in our, our, our spiritual life. But also with that is the lack of wanting to talk about the other type of planning, uh, advanced directives and, um, 
like your you know power of attorneys and and your wills and you know having that conversation with the care your other there may be other siblings other family members but having that conversation about you know what um, the care recipient really would like their end of life to be like and, and you know of course including them in that conversation there was a stigma in the African American community about having that conversation and I think once again that all stems around uh, spirituality you know. Uh, not one to we don't need to discuss that you know um, when time comes we'll deal with it at that point and then you know of course when that time comes having a lot of of, of broken pieces and not um, understanding what needs to really happen because everybody's emotional and making decisions um, that probably not be will be in the best interest of the whole situation but end of life is a, is a conversation that african-american families do not like to necessarily discuss in terms of what needs to happen outside of their spiritual life. Well, that's an extremely important point, and I think it is instructive for us to think about creating context and venues where it becomes more comfortable and accepted to have those conversations and provide the resources. So we thank you so much for bringing that out. Um, We're going to just pause here at this moment and shift over to our conversation with Carolyn, and I'm going to turn this over to my colleague, Francis, at this point. Thanks, Beth. And thank you, Rosalind. That was some great information. Um, Yes, we want to focus a little bit on, on some conversation with Carolyn Thompson, who is a faith community nurse here in Hickory, North Carolina. Carolyn, tell us first a little about your work as a faith community nurse in our community. What does that mean? What does that entail? You might have, uh, again, good afternoon to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You might have heard a faith community nurse termed parish nurse in the past. um, Recently, uh, the name changed faith community nurse because it encompasses um, communities faith community, there has to be um, a church or a a Christian organization involved to, first of all, be a faith community nurse. And I work with a community of churches, Um, so Hickory City at large, Catawba County, and um, we do lots of preventative care, um, education, health promotion, um, just trying to keep people steady at their disease where they are, trying to keep it from progressing if they're already diseased. Um, so lots of education, um, exercise programs, uh, we, we do a lot of that. So we do our best to promote health in, in the faith community. Um, I'm pretty fortunate I have uh, several churches, therefore I have several pastors that um, I work with, and believe it or not, each church community, even though they're African-American churches, they're all different, with different needs. Sure, sure. But that sort of dovetails with what Rosalind was saying earlier about the importance and the centrality of church and faith community in the African-American culture, uh, the African-American population. Um, You were part of the Hickory Community Relations Grant Project. Um, and assisted ACAP in conducting the interviews with the African-American family caregivers in our community. Can you comment first on just the experience of conducting those interviews? I heard they were so powerful. Those interviews were very, very powerful. They were strong interviews. Um, You could sense and feel the strength 
and and I interviewed only ladies. I don't know if there are many men caregivers. Um, I don't know any men caregivers. So all of mine were female and um, very heart-wrenching. We cried together. We laughed together. Um, there were times when I had to stop stop the recording um, just so that um, the interviewee could gather themselves. Um, mm. it, it, wow. it was very, and, and it was spiritual. It was sure. very spiritual as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I kept hearing stories about some of those interviews and that they were just so powerful, so powerful for you all who were listening, but also for those who were sharing their stories. Can you tell us a few of the recurring themes that emerged during the interviews? Of course, some of what um, Ms. Rosalind has already stated, but to add to that, um, you know, even though these these families were caring for families, they were fearful. They were fearful of some of the things that they knew uh, about their loved one, but they were also quite fearful of the things that they did not know. Um, they, I felt, too, that it was overwhelming for, for them. They, they felt stressed. They uh, pointed out that um, they felt lonely. They felt abandoned. Um, so they felt the whole gamut of, of feelings and emotions that a person could possibly feel who's providing care to, to a loved one. And um, Carolyn, I, I remember you're talking about how initially family caregivers felt some support even mm-hmm. from their church. Initially, yes. The daily experience of the repetition and demands really was so mm-hmm. stressful because after a while people forget that they are experiencing this mm-hmm. daily mm-hmm. and caring for their loved one. Which is interesting because um, most of these people are part of a faith community. They have been, you know, for their entire life. Um, once you, you're no longer attending church, well, people see that you're not there. And initially they said that the, the faith community was very supportive. But, you know, as time continued to go on, um, they felt forgotten. Yes. How sad. Because that's such a grueling experience to be a caregiver day in, day out, or can be. Were there any specific cultural issues that seemed to impact the daily living activities? Well, just as Miss Scott, she she's already you know talked about the superwoman complex or superman complex, I, I guess. Um, but but these family members also felt or expected other family members to participate. Mm. Um, in the African-American culture, that is, that is what happens. A family takes care of a loved one when they become ill. So a lot of them felt um, abandoned because that, that part of, of who they were did not take place. Uh, they felt alone, that no one was there to support them. I, I was pretty fortunate. I interviewed um, three sets of people, but then a fourth set that contained three caregivers, um, I interviewed one lady thinking that she was a stay-at-home caregiver, one who, but she, she has gone back to work, one who I knew was working, and then one who was a long-distance caregiver. And then I interviewed a family who was caring for their loved one in the, the, the mom's home. The three sisters live in the mom's home. They all moved back to the mom's home to provide care and um, got different experiences from all of them different experiences from all of them. Um, 
So it sounds like a lot of times for those who are really, I'm going to call it in the trenches of caregiving day in, day out, that all too often they feel abandoned by their by their family, mm-hmm. but also from their faith community. And so they feel like they are out here doing this incredibly important but incredibly difficult work all alone. They, they right. spoke to how difficult uh, being a caregiver was, how, yeah. how yeah. it takes you away from your normal routine and how you have to learn to develop a new re- routine. They're doing something that they've never done before a lot of times. Um, and not knowing how to access the resources. I found that to be um, a theme as well. Those resources may be there, but not knowing how to access them and having fear about how to access them. Um, Hearing rumors and stories in the community about um, something such as you can't receive this benefit because they're going to take this thing away from you. Um, some people are fearful that their homes will be taken away. Um, so there's there's lots of fears out there when it comes to accessing com- community resources. There are lots of fears out there. Right, right. So education of what is available, how to access it, what the impact is, would be really important. Very important. Yeah. Very yeah. important. And also allowing people to understand that these resources are available to every person, regardless right. of race, creed, color. And I, I think that that is a, a cultural uh, barrier as well, right. that a lot of people just don't think that, that those particular com- uh, community resources are for, for me or for my family because they haven't had access all along. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. Were there any other particular supports that they identified being needed? I mean, that's kind of covering a good waterfront. But. Uh, I, I, at the time, can't think of any others, but yeah. One thing that I did hear a lot was that families really wanted the medical community to listen to them. Absolutely. They often said that even when we have a large group of our family members in a hospital room, for instance, and there is a family hierarchy, that somebody really needs to be talking with us about who is in charge here and who is making the decisions and facilitate a broader discussion because often we feel like our voices are not heard. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other pieces of the whole medical experience and medical community that that you heard as themes either positive or or really challenging? Well, I think uh, during the illness, during the, the acute phase of the illness, the, the caregivers did not feel that they were, uh, that they had a voice, that they were being heard. Uh, they did not feel that the doctors supported them in the care of their loved one, uh, so much so that the, the doctors did not tell them everything. Uh, one person I interviewed, her mom was very close to her doctor. She felt that the doctor was um, keeping things from the family. Um, and it could be that he and the mom had that discussion that she should be the one to tell. But um, he would not disclose some pertinent information that they needed to make decisions. Um, so that was a, a concern for one of the families. Um, the doctors didn't, didn't value, they felt that their doctors did not value their input. And even as it relates to um, 
emergency medical personnel coming into the home to because they've called, uh, they've placed a 911 call. They felt that even some of the EMS staff were not listening to what they were telling them about their loved one. That would make it that would make a difficult situation even more difficult. Even more difficult. Yeah. Were there issues that surprised or troubled you as the interview interviewees recounted their experiences? Um, I think um, the thing that troubled me the most was that with with our community, Hickory is very rich in resources. Um, it troubled me that there's this group of people who had no idea of some of those resources. Um, they didn't know where to start, and they were not pointed in the right direction. That was troubling to me, mm-hmm. uh, being a healthcare professional. Um, it was troubling to me that they were in crises and were not pointed towards some resources. And Carolyn and I talked about how troubling it was, how totally isolated so many women felt as caregivers and expressed that to us. And several of them said, I have no life. This is my life. Often they were not only caring for one or two family members, but they were also working one or two other jobs to provide the financial support. Mm -hmm. And that was palpably painful to us in hearing those stories Mm -hmm. from the women. Well, I I guess and, and certainly hope that one of the things that will come from the conversations that you all had, as well as this podcast for people across the nation and the globe, is to begin a conversation about how do we impact change relative to, at minimum, caregivers knowing resources in the community, um, particularly in in populations in groups that don't know or don't have access or don't know that they have access. I think that that is a huge challenge for us, for sure. Um, Carolyn, we've talked some about the medical piece, but what about end-of-life kinds of issues? What did you find in in both your practice as a, as a faith community nurse, but also in these conversations? Were there some issues and some conversation about end-of-life issues? Well, I felt, too, as uh, Ms. Roslyn stated, that it is very spiritual. And um, a lot of times people, the people that I interviewed, they um, are, are pretty hesitant to talk about end-of-life with that care that that person that they're providing the care to uh, is very it's it's a taboo subject to touch is a you know death is not something that's often talked about in 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 the culture so they are having uh, difficult times breaching those conversations but also um one lady that i interviewed what she what she does to bring peace to her because she knows that her mom will die soon um is that she records her mom's voice. Aww. She records her voice, and um, when her mom is, is pretty lucid, and even when she's not, because she wants to be able to reflect back on that. She doesn't ever want to forget what her mom sounds like. Um, so she, she, she does that. That brings peace to her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So, and Carolyn, you mentioned several lovely things about the celebration of life in the African American mm-hmm. community. Could you comment on that for a moment? Well, well, from from my experience, and and please, Miss Rosalind, jump in. Um, from my experience, it, it is usually a ritual of five to seven days, um, where families come over to the home. They bring food. They share share meals and share stories and share memories. Um, over a period of five to seven days before that funeral will even take place. And I do believe that that is uh, pretty, pretty cultural. Um, yeah, correct. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, and even afterwards, too, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the day of, there is a continual fellowship and, and maybe uh, one or two days after that. But, yeah, that is that is the, the cultural um aspect of of end of life from that perspective for uh, African-American families. And that is so important. That support at that time is just critical. You all have given such good information. Carolyn, Rosalind, thank you so much for your insight, for your involvement with this, for your insight and time in supporting caregivers. And Beth, thank you for spearheading this really important project and these conversations. Um, we, rec- we recognize that many caregivers' experiences seem universal, but you both have highlighted, or really you all have highlighted, some experiences and some specific issues that are cultural and certainly that can inform our outreach at ACAP. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, Beth, any additional insights? Because you, too, were very much a part of these interviews. Any other insights that you have that you'd like to share? I feel like we just need more venues for people to express their experiences. And it was enlightening, it was emotional, and it was instructive for us in conducting these interviews. And I thank you for the opportunity, and we want to thank the Hickory Community Relations Grant for making it possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would like to add, too, that some of, some of these interviewees would love to participate in support groups, but the time is not there. You know, right. when would I be able to come? And they themselves did not want to be the ones to start a support group mm-hmm. because they did not feel that they could continue that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Rosin, any other input? <laughs> no, I was just listening to... Um, <laughs> What Carolyn was saying—that's that's uh, that's pretty interesting. That the um, the desire is there for the support group, um, but to attend, uh, but not to uh, start one. And, and maybe it's a matter of you know having respite. You know, who would take care of my loved one right, right. Um, if if I attended the support group and um, help me with that? So maybe uh, it's just a matter of having resources that will allow them to attend. Um, and then again, it could be a transportation issue. And I'm I'm looking at this from Eastern North Carolina, which you know, as Carolyn said earlier, you know, areas are different. I covered 33 counties, and even from one county to the next, or one town to the next, um, things are very different. Uh, so you know, that's that's great that the desire is there. So how how do we fill that gap? How do we fill that need? What is it that we can contribute um, that would you know have them attend? Right. Absolutely, absolutely. And sort of on that note, it seems to me because these podcasts are listened to by people across the country and literally across the globe, I look for what is that 
um, sort of um, sort of marching order, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. how do we take this beyond this point? Um, for both of you, I guess, Rosalind and Carolyn, is the parish nurse or the faith community nurse, is that a fairly universal position or role in faith communities within an African-American culture? No, not at all. Uh-huh. Within uh, the other cultures, yes. Um, there's about 2,000 faith community nurses across the United States. Out That's of, not uh, many. Not many at all. Not yeah. many at all. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I can, um, uh, I know, and, and like I said, once again, in my experience in Eastern North Carolina, um, I, I had not come across any parish nurses, not saying that they were not out there. Um, just and, and the many many caregivers uh, I work with in the African American community, I didn't I did not uh, encounter any parish nurses at all. And I and I did project care from 2009 um, through 2017. Well, Francis, I I think there was one other takeaway too that I thought in terms of just systems of care that. With our existing mental health systems, we really need to be exploring what people's experiences and family histories are and how that impacts caregiving. Because trauma and difficulties and resentment and family dynamics are heightened in the caregiving experience for families. Absolutely. And many things play out again in ways that are surprising, but it's such an intensive experience that all of those things and some of those early losses and hurts come out and then that ends up causing some friction at times around favorites and financial issues and distribution of resources Mm -hmm. in the family. So I think that mental health professionals, we can take note of how we should not neglect that area and recognize the impact of early experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautifully stated. Beautifully stated. I will say that one universal um, organization in every community is the Area Agency on Aging. And I would certainly point all of our listeners to your area, to your regional area agency on aging. And you could find them either by Googling or in a phone book. Um, But in the absence of faith community nurses, that would be a good at least first stop, I would think, or a place to ask a question as well as um, mental health professionals through um, Department of Human Services, those kinds of entities. But certainly going to your church uh, or your faith community would make a lot of sense. And that's what I wanted to add when you said the universal organization. Um, the second universal organization in our communities would be the church. Sure, sure. It would oh, be absolutely. the church. And the, the church is very powerful right. and could be uh, very instrumental in assisting and helping caregivers to to get to the place where they're comfortable, if there is such a thing. Good. I wanted to add. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go right ahead. I wanted to add, um, to piggyback off Carolyn, um, here at the Coach Center, and, and Carolyn is a part of this with her awesome self, um, we have our uh, Coach Caregiver Program that is focused on um, reaching out to the African-American churches 
whereas we uh, we have we have a, a number of churches that we bring uh, for pastors' breakfast uh, to give the pastors a better understanding of what we're trying to do with our C3, which is to reach out to the church and to provide them with training and education and information on such things as Alzheimer's and caregivers and, mm-hmm. and, and diabetes and, and healthy aging for themselves as well as their um, loved one. Um, and then we asked the pastors to, to send two representatives um, from their church, and we're having our current, um, and, you know, not marketing anything, but just kind of piggybacking. The church is very important, and we realize that um, in what we do. And so that's most definitely one of the focuses that we have right now here at our center is to tap into the African-American church and to help them or, or guide them along and being uh, to having the information and the resources available um, to their members. Um, because uh, even though there may be a health ministry, um, they may not necessarily tap into the Alzheimer's component or not necessarily into the caregiver component either. So we just either, you know, we're trying to add on or we're trying to um, to help them start something new in regards to um, reaching the congregation um, about Alzheimer's uh, caregiving. Right, right. And so that's a universal model, really. Yeah. That, and that, that really is what we're talking about. Or what, are the, what are the models that can be used, replicated in other communities? You all, thank you so much, Beth, Rosalind, Carolyn, and for you listeners, thank you for joining us. This podcast is one of 28 podcasts to date that ACAP offers that address a variety of topics relative to caring for aging parents and their caregivers, you the caregiver. You may find our other podcasts on the ACAP website at www.acapcommunity.org or the MESH website, that's www.themesh.tv, or on Apple iTunes. And if you'd like to know more about ACAP or our local chapters in North Carolina and Pennsylvania with more to come, please visit our website, www.acapcommunity.org, or call us at 877-599-2227. Again, for all of you, thank you for being with us for this important conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.